0: Get out of the country? I'm not going anywhere. I'm gonna get Sean Archer. Once we kidnap Super Cop, then what? I'd like to take his his face off. You wanna take his face? Yes. His face? Oh. Eyes. Nose, skin. This is Now Playing Podcast's review of Face Off. Isn't this religious? The eternal battle between good and evil, saint and sinner. But you're still not having any fun! A Podbean backer review chosen by Sean Ray. Papa's got a brand new band. Ow! Hosted by Arnie. If I didn't love you so damn much, I'd have to kill you, bro. Stuart. You're not having any fun, are you? Why don't you come with us? Try terrorism for hire, we'll blow some shit up. It's more fun. And Jacob. You're not the only one in the family with brains.
1: No. Although now I am the only one with the looks.
0: This podcast will have detailed plot spoilers, harsh language, and completely implausible surgical procedures. Shut the fuck up. You watch your fucking mouth. Listener discretion is advised.
1: I'm ready. Ready for the big ride, baby!
2: Today we're discussing Face Off, starring John Travolta, Nicolas Cage, Joan Allen, Gina Gershon, directed by John Woo. This is the now playing co-host who can eat a peach for hours, Arnie and
1: Stuart, And this is Jacob. I I love all our listeners. If I could, I'd go up to each and every one of you and just cascade my fingers down like a meaty flesh waterfall down your face as a sign of affection.
2: (laughs) Yeah, is that a thing? My dad never did that to me, and I'm glad. It
1: is a John Travolta thing.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I don't feel weird about it. Well, I would definitely run some meaty face fingers down Sean Ray's face because he is a backer on Podbean who last year gave us one of the meatiest reviews we've ever had to discuss, Apocalypse Now. And then he's already pledged for a couple coming up in the future, Eyes Wide Shut. This year's its 20th anniversary. He's been so generous. Patrons will get to hear that review this summer. But now we have a duology of reviews from him. This week, Face Off, the 1997 John Woo action classic. Classic, yes. And one I have never... Scene. I'm just going to put it out there. John Woo is a quote unquote cool director. According to many film geeks throughout the 1990s, I was a pariah for not signing on to his stuff. I have never been big on John Woo. I don't really know much of his work. It was hard to get his Hong Kong stuff in the early 90s when his name first became a touchstone, oh, have you seen The Killer? Have you seen Hard Boiled? I wanted to, but my blockbuster wouldn't carry that. They had 90 copies of Three Men and a Little Lady, but I couldn't get (laughs) The Killer. And so when I finally did get to see it, I do remember feeling a little disappointed. It had been dubbed in English, which I always prefer to hear the original voice acting, and it had been re-edited. And so I thought, well, maybe that wasn't why I didn't think it was so hot. And then Woos hollywood films
1: let's go back to mission impossible 2 i
2: mean i don't think that hard target is even one of van damme's best films broken arrow i mean i think its claim to fame is the line ain't it cool getting turned into the handle of the first film geek website i don't think it was loved as an action film oh that's where the name for ain't it cool came from for me broken arrow is best known for its score which got picked up as a sample and used in all the scream movies Yeah. And we covered Mission Impossible 2, worst of the franchise. We covered Paycheck, arguably the worst Philip K. Dick movie. I think Wu's reputation has actually faded. I don't know any film students now, but my guess is they aren't acolytes of John Wu the way that people I knew in the 90s were. In the 90s, the guy had cred.
1: And then he came to the U.S. and ruined it. I I do feel like that is his pariahs, his U.S. film. It's been a long time since I've seen The Killer or Hard Boiled, but I have much more affectionate feelings for those than Paycheck or Mission Impossible 2.
2: I remember liking Hard Target quite a bit as far as jean-claude van damme stuff goes i was not a real big van damme fan but my roommates in college were big into it i ended up watching a lot of van damme stuff kickboxer and stuff hard target was one of the better ones i saw broken arrow in theaters i mean christian slater and samantha mathis together again after pump up the volume how could i resist that on-screen chemistry and then face off Opening weekend, baby! (laughs) Opening weekend. You could not keep me away, because this was the period, I dare call it the apex of Nick Cage's
1: Hollywood career. Caught Air, the same year, right? 1997?
2: Yes. And he had just won the Oscar for leaving Las Vegas the year before. Yeah, he won it in 96 for a 95 movie. In 96, when I became a convert, The Rock... I didn't see The Rock in theaters. I don't know why. It just didn't look that interesting. But I caught it when it was on pay-per-view because my friend had a box that like cracked the scrambling on pay-per-view. And I'm like, this is awesome. So Con Air, I was there in theaters. Face Off, there in theaters. Snake Eyes, there in theaters. And then I stopped because it was Snake Eyes.
1: I did see this in theaters as well. don't know if it was weekend of release. This is when I was living in New Zealand, and I said this with Donnie Brasco. 97, I saw maybe five movies in theaters. So I have really good memories, except that Donnie Brasco one, which was weird because I had no memory of that film. This film, seen it once, I could tell you almost scene for scene, everything that happened. It made an impression on me.
2: And I wish I'd known we were going to be reviewing this. Now... This was one of Paramount Pictures first movies released on DVD. Remember DivX, the circuit city only format? No. Paramount had back DivX. So, the DVD came out in 98. I bought that DVD. It was a staple along with The Rock and Con Air in regular rotation in my house for years. But then I hadn't seen it in a long time. It was on like HBO or something last year, and I watched it last year and re-familiarized my Myself with face off, so I'm really very familiar with this film coming back now, and I am coming in as the fan. Perhaps not as big of a fan as Sean, but among the three of us, I'm the one who recommended Mission Impossible 2. So I guess I'm the fan of American Woo. Yeah, not only was Wu not a draw, but I was pretty tarantino would out by this point. And I know that Quentin doesn't have any producer credit on this film, but his legacy looms large here in almost everything, from the casting of Travolta, the poster looks like a Brian De Palma poster, you know, all these gangsters with guns pointing at each other. It just felt like yet another Tarantino Land movie. The 90s was filled with them. I had just graduated film school. Hell, I had shot some. I was done with with this aesthetic, and so I just never bothered. It wasn't that I was actively saying, no, I will never see this film. It just didn't seem to be a must-see film. And everyone I know that saw it, their qualifier was, it's the best thing Wu has done in Hollywood, but nobody was saying that they loved it. Well, I asked Sean why he picked this movie. I really always want to know why people pick the movies they pick for this. He says, he knows it's bad. But it's so bad, it's really awesome for him. Oh, good. I'm so glad we could agree with at least a part of
1: this. If any arrow, Brown, is what he's saying.
2: Yeah, he's saying he enjoys the cageisms that both Cage and Travolta bring to the film. He was interested in the development hell that it went through, which I can talk a bit to, and the various casts that it was going to have. Then we also kind of spurred this on, because in Mission Impossible 2, Stuart talked about the melodrama that Wu brought to the film. Sean says, wait about 120 seconds, you'll see that same melodrama here with an assassination on a carousel.
1: Mm. Child murder less than three minutes and- to this movie
2: you know when you watch a foreign film you assume sometimes if the dialogue is clunky it's because the translation isn't very good i assumed that woo liked complicated drama i assumed this movie was going to be a lot more like heat and infernal affairs and the departed with a little matrix thrown in that's what i thought i was getting (laughs) when i came to this film You never saw a trailer, did you? I mean, I probably did, but it didn't mean anything. I mean, I just remember a lot of guns being pointed at people and jumping in slow motion. The typical woo ballet of violence. But I just can't emphasize how much I was stunned. You know, sometimes that happens. You hear about a movie and it's a classic. I think that word is used to describe Face Off, an action classic from the 90s. I was stunned that this was the film everyone had been talking about. I couldn't believe... Just going to put it out there. This movie took me 10 hours to watch one. I kept rewinding. I couldn't believe... Like a scene would happen and I'd be like, wait, no, what? And I would go back and I'd be like, no, I'm not understanding
1: something here. I wish this was live streamed. I want to watch you watch this. I couldn't believe it. So what do you think of the pacing of the film? (laughs)
2: Yeah, I can't (laughs) speak to that because most people are going to say it flies by with so much action. But I think the best way to describe my face is the look Gina Gershon gives Nicolas Cage (laughs) when she sees him. He's doing like the crazy smile in the mirror and then she slaps him. I was just like, what are you?
1: To reference another Nick Cage film, it really feels like if you've seen an adaptation where Nick Cage plays Charlie Kaufman and his twin brother Donald, you were expecting the face-off written by Charlie Kaufman, you got the one written by Donald.
2: I thought the absurdity was the premise. Everyone knows the premise is about face swapping, and yeah, that's not scientifically possible, and you know what, I can go with that. That's the mulligan we give, that sometimes there's these absurd concepts, and you do that because you want to get to the theme of it, and if this is a noir, identity is always a big part of noir. What's the difference between a cop and a criminal, and if you swap their face, do they become more like each other? It's a psychological idea that I could really go with. I thought that that was going to be the hiccup that I was going to struggle with i had no idea that's the least silly thing about this movie
1: (laughs) so you knew about this stupid sci-fi stuff going in you knew there's going to be some weird stuff that's not your problem though
2: yeah i knew that this procedure was going to happen i didn't know that the police were going to be the ones advocating it that was a real (laughs) surprise i thought the bad guy was going to want to look like the cop there was a lot of things i thought and they were all destroyed Let me give you a little background that may explain why some of the things are the way they are, and I don't know how much you looked into the people behind the project, but Woo is not a driving creative force here until it gets to the screen. This was a spec script written in 89 and 90 by two guys, Mike Werb and Michael Collery. They're also producers on this, they're UCLA film school grads, they decided to write something together, just so you can see these guys' resumes... Werb is also the writer of Jim Carrey's The Mask, Mm -hmm. Darkman 3, Die, Darkman, Die, and then would go on to do Tomb Raider in 2001 and Tekken. So
1: we've covered quite a bit of him. Not a good record, then.
2: Those are fighting words. Screenwriters, I understand, sometimes you work and your work gets bastardized. Lots of great screenwriters have terrible films on their resume, but if the best thing he did was The Mask, okay. Collery appears to just be on Werb's back, having written Story for Tomb Raider and Darkman 3, Death Wish 5, and that one was way absurd. I was thinking about Death Wish 5 in certain scenes of this movie. You know, this (laughs) is high concept. This is all the rage in the 90s. Give me a pitch in 10 seconds or less cop criminal swaps face sold no that's not at all what they wrote huh what they wrote was a near future sci-fi film okay Most of it took place on a futuristic prison, Mm. and they're in the future able to swap bodies. Mm -hmm. They wrote it with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone in mind that those two would swap personalities because those are the great thespians that can impersonate each other.
1: Yeah, when I think about personalities and distinct, yeah, Stallone and Arnold. It went
2: around a number of directors. Back when this was with Warner Brothers, John Woo was given the script, and John Woo passed. He's like, I don't like science fiction. I want movies with character and humanity, and if there's too much science fiction, we lose the drama. <laughs> yes. Or at least doves. <laughs> and so they had a director on board, Rob Cohen, director mm-hmm. of Fast and Furious, the first one. Then <laughs> Warner Brothers looked at it and was like, wait. We're making Demolition Man with Sylvester Stallone. Right. We can do one of these two films because they're pretty much the same near future action films. So they shelved Face Off. They lost the rights because it expired. Meanwhile, the guys kept rewriting it. They said 35 drafts from their first in 90 until the final shooting script. And in these 35 drafts, yes, Arnold and Sly were a couple. Michael Douglas is a producer of this film. I didn't realize this, that he produced movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, yeah. That's where he got his Oscar. Well, he got it later for Wall Street. But yeah. Yeah. That's where he got his first Oscar. Yeah. I didn't know he produced, but it was going to be him and Harrison Ford. Ah, yeah. I could see that. And then Bruce Willis with Alec Baldwin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now this really, we could have covered it already. It was going to be Pacino and De Niro. Yeah. Ugh. There were years that this would have been the right pairing, but I do think they ended up finding the right pairing for 1997. They went over to Paramount, and it was still a sci-fi film. Paramount optioned the script- and they rewrote it finally for modern day. That's when Wu took it. I guess it had enough character drama this time. He'd just finished Broken Arrow with Travolta. They worked with him, though. He kept wanting to push character, push character. They rewrote, they rewrote, they rewrote, and then they finally got it cast with an Oscar-winning Nicolas Cage and a a fresh-from-a-comeback John Travolta. Now, I'd seen John Travolta in Broken Arrow Was not very impressed at all with Broken Arrow, honestly. I remember not liking the movie. And Travolta's comeback on Pulp Fiction, I felt it was a little overblown. I thought he was good in Pulp Fiction. But, I mean, looking at the movies he did after that, I think Get Shorty is the only one I liked when we're dealing with White Man's Burden and Michael and Phenomenon. And most of those were hits. I'm not saying that they bombed. I'm saying I don't like them. But Travolta was back. You can't deny that he was in demand. And interestingly enough, he almost didn't make this film because he was making something just like it with Roman Polanski. And they had a falling out. But he was off in Paris in 96 filming the double. And Polanski wanted him to do nudity and apparently said some things about Scientology too. And Travolta walked. It was walk-off. And so he's like, <laughs> I'll do face-off because I just did walk-off. If he had done the double, he wouldn't have done this move. Cage didn't want to do this movie because he was at a career peak. He was an action hero with a gold statue on his mantle. He wasn't in trouble with the IRS. No, this is when he was buying all the stuff that got him in trouble with the IRS. He just
1: bought a T-Rex skeleton, yeah.
2: He was trying to be Superman. I mean, they were still working on that Tim Burton version. Yeah, around this time is when all the leaked photos and video of him is coming out and he read it and they were offering him you know the role of caster troy and he's like no i don't want to play a villain even though while filming this movie joel schumacher did approach him to play scarecrow in the next batman film mm-hmm. <laughs> and i think he would have done that one anything comic book he would have done but when Wu was like well you're really only the villain for a little bit of the film really you're the anguished hero Travolta gets to play two characters, the hero and the villain. You get to play three, the hero, the villain, but also the hero coming to terms with the fact that he's wearing the villain's face. <laughs> so Cage signed right on.
1: I love how intellectual they're trying to make all of this sound.
2: Well, it worked on me because I believed that. Having not seen the <laughs> film, I believe that that's what this movie was about, that it was a character piece like Heat, but with John Woo, Ballet of Violence. Did you see Mission Impossible 2 with us? Do you remember? And everyone said that was Wu being bad. This is Wu being good. I now have to evaluate everyone that ever told me that. It's still woo, <laughs> you know? It's like, you could say this is good Indian food and this is bad Indian food, but if you don't like Indian food at all, I mean, you at least need to know that you're dealing with a curry. Yeah, and I didn't think John Woo was camp. I thought John Woo was a serious director because many people I know studied him as if he were scholarly. And that's kind of shocking when you see this masterwork, this classic.
1: What is not scholarly about this, Stuart? I mean, you have Sean Archer based on Sagittarius, the arch or the constellation, which directly opposite of that is Gemini, which has two stars, Castor and Pollux, the name of our two villains. They're diametrically opposed. I mean, this is intellectual. Div- <laughs> the more pretentious, the better. Like, I love all the pretentious details they've tried to sell us. It makes it better.
2: Some newly graduated UCLA film students there for you. Yeah, I understand you do that. When you're given junk, you try to polish the turd, you try to bring ideas. And you know what? Sometimes B-movies do graduate and become scholarly. The writers slash producers themselves were actually surprised when they saw this getting made. Mm, as am I. Because <laughs> this is an $85 million film. And they're showing up on set on days when like the airplanes are crashing or the speedboat chases are happening. And they're like asking each other... The studio does know this is about two people who take their faces off, right? Even they realize that the premise probably comes off a little bit campier than the movie does. But I knew what I was in for when I went into theaters. First of all, I mean, I've seen The Rock and Con Air at this point. Have you seen either of those? I've never seen them. <laughs> okay. Right there, there's a level set. There's a problem. Because if you don't know, put down the buddy. The <laughs> no, I don't know any of this. I did not go see action movies in the 90s. I really didn't.
1: That is an indie film. John Malkovich, Steve Buscemi. Come on. It's all indie actors as villains. And Leaving Las Vegas is Nicolas Cage. I mean, that
2: is actually why I saw it, was the cast. Mm-hmm. And
1: isn't Ving Rames
2: in yes, it?
0: Yes,
1: Ving Rames is in it, too. Yes.
2: It was like a <laughs> Pulp Fiction reunion, but... The trailer for this was really campy in and of itself because it started with, like, a grizzled, worn-down Travolta discussing this guy he's trying to capture, but trying to capture for years. It's
1: very serious, the camera rotating
2: around him. It does a 360, so you're behind his head, and when you come back around the other side, he goes, The only way to stop him is to become him. And of course, it's Nicolas Cage, and then you're treated to another 60 seconds of over-the-top ridiculous gunfights and explosions. I knew what I was in for. I went happily. Yeah, I mean, I knew that it was gunfights and over-the-top action. I just didn't know the rest of it. I mean, I didn't know the plot. Arnie, why don't you give it to folks? Maybe they don't know, like me, and we can all laugh about face-off. Nicolas Cage is Castor Troy. International terrorist for hire. John Travolta is Sean Archer, the FBI agent trying to capture Troy. In 1991, Troy tried to take out the lawman stalking him, so he used a sniper rifle to shoot Archer in the back, but the bullet went clean through Archer's body into his young son, killing the toddler. Now it's six years later, and Archer is still hunting Troy, but Archer is now obsessed. He's been emotionally distant from his wife, Eve, played by Joan Allen, and his daughter, Jamie, played by Dominique Swain. The loss of his son has made him single-minded about catching Troy for revenge. Troy, for his part, is living it up with his life of crime, with gold guns and a gold dragon money clip. But Archer and his team finally catch the terrorist. But in the massive airplane chase and gunfight, Troy ends up in a coma. They also arrest Troy's younger brother, Pollux, one of the brains behind Troy's terrorism. It's then revealed, though, that Troy had set a time bomb somewhere in Los Angeles. It will kill hundreds of people, and the only ones who know where the bomb is is Castor Troy, in a coma, and Pollux Troy, who ain't talking. But FBI Special Ops has a suggestion. They know a guy, a doctor, who's an advanced plastic surgeon. As Archer knows Troy better than anyone, they want to perform a face transplant, putting Troy's face on Archer's body so they can trick Pollux into revealing the location of the bomb. They also give Archer a tummy tuck, some hair laser removal, and implant a chip in his throat so his voice sounds like Troy's. Archer reluctantly agrees and does get Pollux to give the bomb location, but there's a catch. Caster Troy woke up and he's pissed he doesn't have a face, so his goons kidnap the doctor and they force the doctor to put Archer's face on Troy's body. Then they kill the doctors, as well as the few people who knew about Archer's undercover assignment. Troy, now in the skin of America's favorite lawman, even more famous after Troy stopped the L.A. bomb, plans to use his new role to take down all his enemies in the world of crime, leaving the Troys as the head of all underground operation. And he revels in being Archer, even seducing Archer's estranged wife Eve, and bonding with Archer's rebellious daughter Jamie. And Archer, in Troy's face, is trapped in an ocean prison. Everyone who knows his true identity is dead, but he breaks out of the prison, swims to Los Angeles, and resumes his favorite hobby, hunting Caster Troy. And to do this, he has to meet up with many of Troy's associates, including Troy's former lover, Sasha, played by Gina Gershon. And Archer meets Troy and Sasha's son, Adam. Archer reaches his wife and eventually convinces her that the man she thinks is her husband is, in fact, Caster Troy. And Troy had killed Archer's boss. And at the boss's funeral, Archer ambushes Troy and a major firefight breaks out. Sasha, who came to Archer's aid, not realizing he wasn't Troy, is killed. And Archer and Troy end up in a boat chase. Archer catches Troy. So as a last ditch effort to ruin Archer's life, Troy tries to slice up his face or Archer's face or Archer's face on his body. It gets a little confusing. But Archer shoots Troy with a harpoon gun, killing him and the FBI brings in some magic surgeons able to put Archer's face back on his body, and he returns home with Adam, who he and Eve will raise as a surrogate son, as credits roll. Woof. Now... I'm the person who, on a lot of podcasts, I'm going to sit here and nitpick realism. So let me just get this off my chest, and then I'll completely roll with face transplants. Okay. A, face transplants are now a thing, but the bone structure underneath doesn't actually look like the person, so when you have a new face, you no longer look like your old self or the new person.
1: No, they address that. They say they put implants on the skull and then put the face over it, so it takes the shape. B. Tissue rejection. This was a concern of my wife's. So she, she's watching, and she's like, "Oh, there's not a rejection that I don't buy any of this." C.
2: The wounds heal so quickly. I had to have a cyst taken off my foot, and it had a giant gaping wound that I couldn't take a shower with
1: for three weeks. They said those lasers heal super fast, and they have like these anti-inflammatories that cure you instantly. Four. You can't live without skin on your face. Eh, it was just a couple days. <laughs> Okay. I'm more concerned about him smoking with no face. (laughs) Five. Would he even have eyelids left? I thought he'd be
2: like Clockwork Orange, constantly dripping stuff in the eyeball. Okay. I'm done. (laughs) Face transplants. Thumbs up. Okay. Yeah, again, that's not my problem with this movie. That's the least absurd thing in this movie. (laughs) I mean, it kicks off with absurdity. We're at Griffith Park Carousel for some reason. With
1: the music box playing. Like, it's so melodramatic,
2: it's shameful. I thought Hollywood made him do this stuff. No, he is just cheesy at heart. Like, cue the balloons to signify the death of a child floating in the air. I mean, that's the kind of thing I would expect in a film class. I wouldn't expect (laughs) Master John Woo to fall to that kind of cliché. I think that's one of his trademarks is to bring in visual metaphors like the doves all the time and everything. Yeah, uh, you're talking about cliches. I mean, that's, again, I would expect first-time people that are just learning film grammar to do. But this is what he's done and been very successful with in his Chinese films. And he's trying to bring his style To America. He felt like the first two films he'd made in America, he was getting his sea legs. The first one, Hard Target, he felt didn't get mass appeal because it was just too Chinese John Woo. He then felt like he went too far the other way on Broken Arrow and made just a generic American action film that didn't have any of his style except for some doves. So this was the balance. And by and large, the studio was pretty hands off. they let Wu do that Wu do that he do so well. Or not. But my favorite part of this scene is, all right, lots of weirdness. Travolta doing the hand gesture you referred to, Jacob. I don't know what that is. The <laughs>
1: waterfall. I just kept calling it the waterfall in my notes. I tallied up every time there was a finger waterfall.
2: I went and did that to Marjorie after the movie. Oh. Did she punch you? And she just was freaked out. She was like, what are you doing? It's like, remember the old schoolyard joke of a starving brain sucker kind of thing? So, obviously, Travolta looks very bizarre or on a carousel doing that with a child. Then we see that he's in the scopes and that Nicolas Cage is going to shoot him. And so... Poor Travolta has to, like, grab this doll and have this big emotional cry up to the sky, and there's one motherfucker still on the carousel. I love it. He's like, nope, I paid my $5, and I'm not getting off this son of a bitch until it's stops. He's sitting there crying and weeping, and there's this, still this one guy on the horse as it passes. The thing that got me is poor Travolta, knowing that his son in real life passed away... This hit me harder now than it did in the 90s, seeing John Travolta mourn over the death of his son and then become a little bit insane and fixated on work after it. Life imitated art a little, and that's sad. Let's not call this art, <laughs> but moving on. Six years later, although they get all these dates wrong, I went back and sometimes the computer would report that day as September 9th, and then another time it was like the 18th or something like that. There's so much waffling about the dates that it is completely inconsistent. Y2K. Oh, is that, that all the computers got confused? <laughs> yes. Okay. Sure. Why not?
1: Stuart, did you know what movie you were in when we got this next scene with Nick Cage? Of him as a priest, headbanging.
2: Well, I mean, I know Nick Cage and I know what he likes to do. And it's not a surprise that he would disrupt a performance of Handel's Messiah doing some kind of dance in a priest robe while inconspicuously putting a giant bomb in a rocket just <laughs> (laughs) next door like where's the security I guess it was at this point that I realized this movie was going to operate in the air and you just have to accept that every absurdity is its own pathway to amusement or something. You can nitpick this all you want but I personally have no logistical problems with this movie yet. I mean we're two minutes in.
1: I just think it's weird that there's a gospel choir convention. I guess there's a convention (laughs) for everything these days why not gospel choir? (laughs) I've actually been to one, Jacob. Okay. At the LA Convention Center, though? Like, that is a big convention center for a gospel choir convention.
2: (laughs) I went to a Wizard World, and on the first floor, you had all the cosplayers, and on the second floor, there was a gospel choir convention. (laughs) It was quite fun. Well, here's what I would say. I didn't watch a lot of action movies in the 90s, but I did see the big ones. I saw the Die Hard films, and I saw Speed, and villains were the king. Nobody cared about the hero. It was all about how big you can go as the villain and there was a lot of pressure of like willem Defoe in speed 2 is like i gotta put leeches on me and everyone had to do something absurd cage is not going to be out of done he is going to give the biggest villain performance of them all and so it's its own glorious mess
1: It is amazing. There is a YouTube video that GQ... I guess they put out a series of actors where they talk about like their greatest roles. I'm obsessed with those right now. I've watched like 50 of them. Okay, then you must have watched the Nick Cage one. It's the only one worth watching, in my opinion. And he talks about this role. And he says, when John Travolta saw this scene, like the dailies, because they'd watch each other's dailies so they could practice acting like each other. He's like... Oh, so that's how you're acting in this film. Like, totally shocked. The best thing about Nick Cage, though, this is all his German impressionistic. He is trying to tap into Metropolis and Nosferatu with these white eyes. He taps into Nosferatu
2: because when he grabs that hottie's ass and he looks up and makes that face, I'm like... That's the VHS cover to Vampire's Kiss right
1: there. Yes, he said this was an extension of what he perfected in Vampire's Kiss.
2: To be clear, I've seen Nicholas Cage talk about his acting in general, and the acting that he loves is from the silent era, when they couldn't use dialogue. And so, if you've ever seen any silent film, all the performances are... Usually, there's a few that have subtle acting, but most of them are about, oh, I better have two minutes of my eyes getting wide to let you know I'm scared. And that is... Nick Cage all over. You can't be too big for Nick Cage. He wants to be as large as those big screen icons of the silent era. But we've discussed Nick Cage before, and I always love that he is such a character-driven actor in that when he gets hired for a role, he immediately goes to the director and says, what can I do to add some depth to my character? What can I do to make him feel more real? In some movies, I'm going to be a bodybuilder who bench-pressed women as my thing. Here... He said, you know, I like dragons. I was born in the year of the dragon. I need two gold guns with dragons on them and a dragon money clip. Dragons are going to be Caster Troy's trademark. And I think he took those same two guns over to Snake Eyes because I remember him having golden guns in that too. I mean, it's Ghost Rider, right? With Karen Carpenter and Jelly Beans. I mean, yes, I'm kind of angry because you're implying these things help make the character more realistic. I'm making fun of him. Yeah, yeah. Their flourishes." to bring attention to him and the choices that he makes. I would say this is where, again, I get a lot of uh, we're in the post-Tarantino era. I mean, pimps were very trendy, and Cage is essentially playing a black exploitation pimp. He has got capes, he's got gold guns, so much flair in all of this. He's offered, like, a box of chiclets and reefer. <laughs> I'm positive those chiclets had to be his choice, too. Yes. Cage and Travolta spent two weeks together before this movie working on mannerisms and what each other could do that they could mimic. Now... I think this movie has one base flaw, because here at the beginning, you have Nick Cage acting like Nick Cage, right? And you've got John Travolta doing what Travolta does. For the bulk of this movie, you have Cage trying to act like Travolta, I think, and Travolta trying to act like Cage. But these guys are performers. They're not actors. They're not somebody who you're going to get to do the Christian Bale, Dick Cheney-like embodiment of a person. I think at the beginning, Nick Cage should have already been playing Travolta, and Travolta should be playing Cage. So when they flip for the rest of the movie, they can actually just be themselves.
1: I'll say this. I think Travolta is not a very good actor. He's got a great screen presence, but his acting never blows me away, and I never buy him as trying to pull off any Cage-type stuff in this. Nick Cage, on the other hand, when he's Nick Cage doing John Travolta doing Nick Cage... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's bad, but I love it. It is so over the top. Cut Travolta out of this film. Just make it all about Cage.
2: Yeah, Cage is, has established himself as someone that likes bad acting. And so he's, he's hard to grade. You just have to kind of watch what he's doing. Travolta is someone that actually tries to give good performances and is usually at his best when he's sweet. I find I like the performances where he's in lighter films, like Get Shorty. But he has many times tried to be a dramatic actor, and his impersonations of Cage are about as good as his impersonation of Robert Shapiro in that O.J. movie, or <laughs> oh, <that was> bad. <laughs> his more recent Gotti film. like He's tried to be other people, and you realize that he's not. He is John Travolta the sweet guy from the Bronx who just wants to dance. I don't like him when he's in this mode, and I don't think Cage has a lot to work with in having to satirize that. All I wanted, this whole movie, and I never got, was to see John Travolta try to make that vampire's kiss face. Yes! I just wanted once to see him do that, and he never does. Or if he does, it's so half-hearted that I didn't pick it up. Yeah, their acting styles are very different, and I think Cage probably enjoyed the challenge of trying to satirize Travolta, but Travolta looks like he's uncomfortable, both in his straight man role here and later trying to be the villain. In the straight man role, he does look uncomfortable, but you have to understand, this is a guy with a big chip on his shoulder. His marriage is unhappy. He's unhappy.
1: But if you're going to do someone that has this dramatic of a role, you want a dramatic actor, someone that's still not over the death of their son not saying he should be six years later but someone that's grappling with that has this vengeance fantasy like you you need a dramatic actor for this and Travolta is not that person
2: you want something more to work with than him like wringing his hands to show that he's really concerned these are very clumsy film school 101 directing choices on how to establish character
1: but at the airport before the plane starts going down the runway did someone write in the script If I were to let you suck my tongue, would you be grateful? Or is that just a Cage improv?
2: Cage definitely had a lot of input on his own dialogue and a lot of ad-libbing, and that's pretty much what was said. And here we're going to have a completely over-the-top capture scene as... Travolta and his men go to get Caster, who's on an airplane flying off. And that's not going to stop Archer. He's going to do what it takes to stop that plane, even if it means flying a helicopter and landing on the wings.
1: <laughs> yeah, first he tries to stop it with a car. That doesn't work. So he's got to get a helicopter.
2: And help me understand the plot. They have set a bomb that's not going to go off for 30 some days. I thought it was a week.
1: Yeah, I thought it was just over a week. (laughs) It is a really
2: long period of time to hope that nobody comes along and finds the bomb. You know, he's who I want to hire as an international terrorist because he doesn't procrastinate. He's not going to be turning in his homework at the 11th hour. He's going to do his terrorism in advance. And then they also have some dialogue about how the guy that sold them the plastics, Dietrich, who we'll meet later, gave them bad stuff. And I'm like, oh, is that why it didn't go off? I feel like there's a lot of confusion as to what their plot really is. And the only reason why the cops have found them is apparently the brother paid cash for this airplane. And that somehow set off some kind of trigger. Nobody's looking at the L.A. Convention Center, but everyone's looking at this airfield.
1: And Archer's the only one that believed that Castor was still in L.A. The rest of the FBI thinks he's somewhere else. He's like, I'm going to go with my cheap informant and go with this, go to the airport. But they got an undercover FBI agent on the plane. So it's weird. Is she the informant, the stewardess that ends up pulling out a gun and then gets killed? That's what I took it as. I know there's a
2: lot of jibber jabber on the tarmac about bad stuff and things and i just figured this is criminal conversation but this agent on the plane who does suck Castor troy's tongue because you do not want to be found out when you're undercover so suck that tongue to stay alive i thought she was the one who gave them the information come to the airfield caster troy is here right
1: watching it now the action scenes except when nick cage does some barefoot water skiing later on like the action scenes i kind of just tune out during i'm like okay let's get through this yes i'm enjoying this ironically the the -the over-the-top acting the ridiculousness of the plot how over the top it is that that is something i appreciate is like you see that in a lot of smaller indie films just like we're just gonna go crazy and like throw everything at the wall and see what sticks and yeah i enjoyed that i don't take it seriously though
2: yeah, hobo with a the shotgun, they know it's bad and we're going to relish it, and that's what this is. All of the millions of people that paid money to see this are laughing, they're not like, oh my god, the bomb.
1: I think when I saw this in theaters, I was as perplexed as you must have been after watching this for the first time, Stuart. I remember walking out of that theater going, huh, was I supposed to like laugh at this film? Because I don't feel it was very serious. The truth is, and the screenwriters admit this, the bomb
2: is so unimportant that they really just needed it to have a reason why Archer will need to go undercover. If they were rewriting all of this, they really should have gone back. There must have been something in the whole setup that, lay like, like, we can't get rid of the bomb because you don't need all of this. There are other ways to devise a reason why the face swap might have happened and cleaner ways. But this is so absurd that it might work for you if you're looking at this As a comedy. And so that's what you guys are telling me. This movie is a parent trap set by (laughs) Mrs. Doubtfire and Big Mama. And I just need to roll with the absurdity of two hammy actors putting on the latex and being silly and stop thinking about anything that I would call an action movie.
1: I would say that is the only way you can find enjoyment in this film. I might be wrong. I'd love someone to come to Facebook or Twitter and tell us how you can enjoy this as a serious action film. I don't think that's possible, but I don't think it was meant to be a comedy. But ironically, it turns out that way. So, yes, I enjoy it on that level a lot.
2: And I think... The tongue may not have been firmly in the cheek, but I don't think at any point, and listening to two commentaries for this film and watching behind-the-scene features from the 10th anniversary DVD set, at no point did they talk about the suspense. At no point did they talk about the tension. They talked about the action and the fun. So... I don't know if they're thinking ha ha, but they're thinking roller coaster. They're thinking big over-the-top spectacle. And I gotta give this movie one huge thing from beginning to end. Just remember, this movie came out during the final days of practical stunts, practical effects. Everything they're doing here they're doing here if they're flying a helicopter by an airplane on a tarmac there's a helicopter there's an airplane
1: yeah and i feel like that was john woo i read that they wanted to just do this all green screen but he's like no we got to make it real which I appreciate that.
2: I associate that with the hallmark of Hong Kong and they have different laws there. I mean, I think a lot of the struggle of the Hong Kong directors when they came to Hollywood was like, oh, there's unions for this and there's laws and we can't take these risks and insurance. And so we never saw the kinds of thrilling stunts in a Hollywood movie that we do when we look at those Hong Kong films. I would say that this action feels very similar to an Under Siege movie. I mean, I don't feel like it has any spark of creativity beyond what anyone else was doing at that time. I don't see someone pioneering new ways to tell action.
1: No, I agree with you, Stuart, and that's why I kind of tune out during the action scenes in this film. Again, I like practical stunt work that's going on, but yeah, there, there doesn't feel any more creative than, again, if I was watching Speed or Air Force One or any of those other 90s action films. I would expect more from John Woo, and maybe when you have Travolta and Cage as your leads, you just can't get that kind of physical action.
2: Oh, there were stunt doubles all over the place on this. The one CGI effect they used was face pasting. So they would have stunt doubles do stuff and then digitally put... Travolta's face on there. Pretty poorly, I might add, because during one stunt, I'm like, what's wrong
1: with that stunt double's face? I didn't even realize it was supposed to be Travolta. That's just an extra layer of irony. They couldn't even take the face off right. <laughs> if logic's
2: what we're bringing, I'm like, that tarmac that they ran down must have been like from there to San Diego. I mean, that plane <laughs> taxied so long. I'm just like, I what? where are they getting all of this tarmac?
1: It's as long as the one in Furious 5. Well, it's hard to take off when there's
2: a helicopter bouncing on your wing, right? But they would have hit the uh, warehouse that they crash into much earlier. But I am actually having fun. As you have Caster jumping out of an airplane with an Uzi. And yet somehow, with a semi-automatic pistol, Travolta can shoot faster
1: than an Uzi. And Travolta and Cage are counting bullets from each other's guns during this whole fight scene. Like, they'll face off against each other and be like, Each have one bullet left. I see you've been counting.
2: We have something in common. We both know our guns. But the point is, at the end of this thing, everyone believes that Nicolas Cage's caster is dead, including John Travolta's archer. He retires, and I'm gonna, this is a big thing for him, because apparently the only reason why he was doing police work was to avenge the killer of his son. I think in other movies, that could have been the entire arc, right? I mean, hell, we get a bit part from a very young Thomas Jane in this film, and yeah, you could view this as the entire plot of the Thomas Jane, John Travolta Punisher film. Mm, I didn't want to even think about that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, you kill the kid, and so... They go on a vengeance spree to stop the criminals. Oh, I mean, yeah, I'm aware of cliche. Again, this is a (laughs) hoary cliche after hoary cliche. The way Nicolas Cage is even playing it. I'm like, yeah, I've seen so many Death Wish movies where the bad guy's like, "Ah," kneeling before the gun. And then they got something, the knife in the back pocket. I believe that John Woo was special. And I believe that he was talented in a way that he did something original. I'm not seeing anything in this opening 20 minutes to make me believe that I'm not watching something Seagal would do or just any run-of-the-mill action thing from that era. It doesn't feel like this would have been more of a classic than Under Siege 2. Yeah, well, with the exception of Under Siege, I defy you to show me a Seagal film that looks this good. I really think that the budget is on the screen here. It's not all in Cage's gold guns. And from the cinematography and the use of color to the big action here, Seagal could never afford in a movie... To open with this airplane chase, that would be the climax of his film where they blow all their money. This is the start of this big action spectacle. All right, so let's get to the turning point from Act 1 to Act 2, is that they find out there's a bomb, Travolta can't retire, he's got to do one more thing, and the most believable way of tracking a bomb is to... They even walk into the lab... Some guy named Loomis got shot in the ear. They're making him a fake ear. They could make him a fake... Nick Cage's face, but why do that when we can cut off the real face and stick it on?
1: They call out, I believe, there's some technical jargon that the ear, it's not a functioning ear. It's just going to be put on his face for aesthetic reasons, but with the face, it's got to have muscles and it's got to move. You can't just print that up.
2: And stepping out of the movie and just asking a logistical question, why can't they just make that plastic surgery? Why must they tear off the flesh of one and put it on the other? And who would consent to that? I mean. I mean, Tom Cruise wears a hundred masks in Mission Impossible 2. Okay, that makes sense. I'll wear a latex mask that makes me look like somebody else. But to remove my face surgically and put another man's face on it, and only one doctor knows how to do it.
1: (laughs) Stuart, this is the beauty to me is just like, this is so dumb. We're going to swap faces. We're going to cut the face off, put it on someone else. I ain't asking questions about the logistics. I'm going with it because I love how stupid it is
2: when you're talking about noir in general, identity is the idea is that there's not a lot different between the cop pursuing the criminal and the criminal themselves. Once they get down to mimicking each other, that one usually has to become the other in order to find them. It's a cliche. We saw it in Manhunter. We've seen it many times that they're adding the sci-fi gimmick is just sort of a novelty, but I expect this movie to be telling me something about the nature of being a criminal and being an event investigative cop maybe i'm thinking too much about this
1: you are you spent 10 hours watching it is
2: the fact that they're saying that it's actually his flesh his actual skin is full of evil and that's why it's going to make travolta like lose control
1: i don't feel like travolta ever loses control except when he does drugs just because a lot of the films you've seen
2: like manhunter have that the cop has to become the criminal That's not this film. It may be your expectation of this film, but Mm. I don't think at any point Archer has to become a criminal. He may become a little bit more sympathetic towards the life of those around the criminal, but... No, this is not that movie where there's a transformation beyond the physical. And what is this? This is called The Hook. This is called the 500-foot elevator pitch. This is what gets you in the theater is, what are you seeing? I'm going to see the movie where they swap faces. Why do they swap faces? Because it's in a movie. Right. You want to see where they go with it. I'll give you the dumb excuse. Fine. This is what it is. I don't even blink at the idea... Other than the fact that it has to be the real face. I don't know why that has to be.
1: You're looking at this too hardly. This isn't about what makes a criminal or a cop good and bad. It's just about identity. There's a scene with the daughter Jamie earlier on where I guess she's gone all goth and done some weird mascara. And she's like, I'm supposed to be me. And that's the theme. Just be you. That is as deep as this film is going to get with this whole theme of identity.
2: It's crushingly disappointing. I can't undersell.
1: Crushingly, okay. (laughs)
2: How disappointed I was at how surface and empty this movie was. But let's talk about fun, because that is the last white flag that people wave when the argument can't be won any other way. Well, I had fun. All right. well you had fun, but we need to talk about why that would
1: be. I'll speak for myself and say it's all about tone. If this was a De niro Pacino joint, no, I don't want that. Those are the wrong actors for this kind of premise. You gotta get the right actors, the right tone. Have you seen Pacino in the 90s? I think he'd be perfect. Maybe Pacino. I I don't think De Niro would have any fun. Even Michael Douglas and Harrison Ford, Harrison Ford ain't gonna have any fun with this premise. It's all about the tone and how they're gonna treat this premise. And again, Sometimes they're in on the joke. Sometimes it's just they're so pretentious about something so absurd. That's what makes it fun for me.
2: What is the joke? The acting? <laughs> Nick Cage is a bad actor and won an Oscar.
1: John Travolta, I'm laughing at his acting too because I just think he's bad. Cage is doing crazy stuff. The premise for this is so ridiculous to me. Like we are going to cut off faces and swap them. I don't know if you could do that straight.
2: But that doesn't mean it's a joke. It just means you're rolling with it and having fun and understand its silliness, but that doesn't mean I'm laughing at it.
1: Oh, I'm I'm laughing at this film throughout.
2: I guess the question all boils down to, is Nick Cage in on the joke? Does he know what he's doing when he does Ghost Rider and he does this type of thing? Because if so, then I'm laughing with him. If not, then yes, I am laughing at him. Okay, so the appeal is... cage. No, I think that Wu takes that caginess and weaves it throughout. I feel like Travolta is bringing that level. I think Sean Ray was right. He is bringing a cage level performance. Okay. Because a lot of this movie feels like it's weighted on Travolta's shoulders and there's this whole next passage that feels like the sci-fi film you described where we're now at a prison with magnetic boots and he's got to get answers for what's happening at the bomb and the L.A. Convention Center. But that's all Cage. You said it's writing on Travolta. That's Cage. Oh, yeah, I guess it is. That's weird. Okay, yeah.
1: They fit. You see, they swapped faces. Because Cage is the good guy now. Well,
2: then let me rephrase. If This part feels the opposite of fun. This feels like a stupid Stallone film. Oh, no,
1: I love this. I love it because it is a stupid Stallone film. Like, we're going to go into a prison. It's just not a super secure prison. It's also one where they wear the magnetic boot. It's just like absurdity stacked on absurdity stacked. It's like you could just have an underground super secret prison, but nope, we're going to have special boots, and it's all going to be crazy sci-fi.
2: And Stallone and Schwarzenegger did make this film because they did escape play yes, as yeah, they did. I don't know- prison that was in the ocean and this could be worse than this right
1: not as good as this
2: oh it's so bad no it couldn't be worse than this it is because there's no fun to it i need to understand what you guys say when you say fun i think we are trying like Stuart is an alien that has come from space and jacob you and i are like tell me your concept of fun yeah
1: it's because stallone and schwarzenegger take it serious for me it's just such a dumb premise that oh you're gonna take this seriously and make me really consider it no it doesn't work
2: and For me, again, because this next section is very focused on Cage, because Caster Troy is left with like this invisible man bandage around his faceless head. And we've got Nick Cage now as Archer in the prison. Watching Nick Cage learn that he has to be Nick Cage when he's like at that prison
1: fight. Oh, watching his laugh, cry, laugh yes. mannerisms. Amazing.
2: That's what I was talking about earlier. There is a case where the cop is learning to be the criminal and he learns that he has to commit a violent act if he's not going to be exposed during this cafeteria fight. And I thought this movie was building towards all kinds of moments like that. But this is a body swap comedy. This is Freaky Friday. Yeah, I mean, you got to understand, Travolta's taller than Cage. The two of them do not have similar skin tone. There's so many things wrong with this body. I wonder how much of Travolta's ego had to go at the side when the doctor's talking about the love handles. I mean, did the doctor insert fat into Nick Cage? I mean, they'll make fun of his chin in this. I'm just having fun watching Cage, and the actor they got for Pollux Troy, Alessandro Nivola, is having an equal amount of fun. I don't know if he's trying to play
1: autistic or if he's trying to play... Is this actor not American? It feels like he's trying to speak with an accent <laughs> throughout most of the film. Hey, bro. He's British.
2: The British doesn't come through. The weird inflection and voice comes through, though. And I'm finding him to be just fascinating. I, he shares the screen with Cage in a way that... He's not outshone by Cage's light. Yeah, like when he waves, he does it with his little pinky or whatever. Okay, so we're just in a world where everyone is going to improv some delusion. And that makes this a parade of insanity. You are heckling or, or marching along with the parade.
1: Yes, I'm marching with this parade. Even though I had only seen this once, there is a reason that I could almost totally recall every scene, and I would just erupt into a fit of giggles when someone would mention the title.
2: The shock for me is that this is playing very much like a very broad 90s comedy. This is sister act. This is not (laughs) an action film. Even though the poster and the billing and the hype said that this was going to be an intense action spectacular. But there's so much action here. When Nick Cage does his final smile and gets in that fist fight with the guy, and of course, the plane, the boats, all of this, that is action. I mean, that because action is in it, doesn't make it action. The tone is comedic. So I shouldn't be getting upset that things like his breakout prison attempt here is so stupid. I should love it. That should be great that he thinks that if he can get a cigarette, it's going to lead to this domino effect in which he can bust out and stop Caster, who has somehow blackmailed the only doctor into putting Travolta's face onto
1: his. Yes, they kidnap the, I think they call it secret ops. Yes. Doctor to do this full surgery on him at gunpoint i wish this film was a little bit sleazier we get just a reflection in some glasses of faceless nick cage smoking a cigarette just have fun with it and have that pus dripping and have him walking around with no face i wish we got more of that
2: yeah i wanted frank from hellraiser here i wanted to see the face i wanted to see him doing the eye
1: drops because he has no eyelids i do like the sound design that he you could tell he's trying to talk like he doesn't have lips mm-hmm. <laughs> in fact i actually started mimicking I
2: started like seeing, is he doing it right? Are I talking no lish How do I sound? And it turned out a little bit like Sean Connery. But <laughs> I think that more of this would be better. When we see the reflection, it looks like somebody just smeared grape jam on his face or something. Yeah, I was definitely thinking Hellraiser beat them to the punch by 10 years. And i I thought that I could give the movie the premise. But now, I mean, this is just really bad that this is the way that it all happened. And you could take half a day and write this so that it would work with more plausibility, unless you don't want plausibility. And so I must only accept this as camp. We're trying to make it bad. I'm just saying that if the action is good and enthralling and often, then I'm going to go with a film that's stupid a lot better than I'm going to if it's also dull. Okay, so filmmakers everywhere, if your movie isn't working, just raise the money for some action scenes and Arty will like it. And half of America. Have you seen the box office returns for Transformers? But you don't like those. Here's what I'm trying to meet this movie at. I'm trying to find why someone would enjoy this film. I know it's not made for me. That's why I never even saw it. And so what is it that people like? The mimicry, right? It's the parody once they get going here of Cage is going to spoof Travolta and Travolta is going to learn how to get a little uncaged. Yes. That, and there's something there when Travolta, who's now Caster Troy, goes to Travolta's house and they're playing Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. I mean, help me understand that. That is entertaining for you. That moment is something you want to see.
1: Yes, because we're getting
2: to see a fish out of water.
1: Are you talking about when he's going to molest his daughter?
2: Yeah, I'm like, what the hell is
1: this? Because that is the moment where I'm like, ooh, okay, cut this scene.
2: It's a little creepy, but it also provides the things I thought Stuart would want. Tension. We don't want to see this girl molested. But they're not really even talking about that. They don't even go there with that. The sexual assault becomes with the wife. That's who gets raped, but not the daughter. The daughter is just going to get a knife, which is just heavy, heavy foreshadowing for her eventually sticking him with it. I thought she would get the kill, actually. That was one of the times I was surprised by this film.
1: One of the things that I thought was interesting, they don't really go there. They maybe pay a little bit of lip service, but watching Travolta as caster Troy, you have to get used to the suburban life. And he like looks through his wife's diary and she sees how bored she is an awful date night. And so it's kind of sweet. He's like, oh, I'm going to have this candlelit dinner. And there are moments where I could see, oh, yeah, if you wanted to make this a good body swap movie, you could have some interesting moments about a serial killer getting used to suburbia. They don't really go there, though.
2: Just looking at Joan Allen, they set up something here that I thought was going to... I'm like, oh, well, you just told me how she's going to figure it out. I don't think it ever even comes up. Travolta, before he goes away for the procedure and to go undercover in the prison, Travolta is holding his chest and going, oh my god, the anniversary. Remember this scar? I mean, if cage is coming just wearing travolta's face he doesn't have that scar
1: well he he had to give him back the love handles and stuff but i was wondering about the scar too i
2: thought for sure that was how she would figure it out and not like oh let me get a hypodermic in the middle of the night and stick him so i can do a blood test who comes up with that again unless you're trying to make me laugh at how bad the writing is
1: but are you not laughing? Because look, nothing against Joan Allen, fine actress. But when they do it, an ass shot of her, and like Travolta is hitting on her, and they just pan that camera against her flat ass, and it's like, oh yeah, like <laughs> I'm cracking up. This is hilarious.
2: And the music again, yes, the James Brown going on, <laughs> and the fact that he's only doing this, he's not attracted to her. He's only doing this. Because he wants to completely get one up on Archer. He's not just going to sleep with Archer's wife, which is bad enough, but he's going to seduce her because Archer can't even succeed in that. He's going to go in and just overtake Archer's life and do it better than Archer does. One of the big things... I feel like Nicolas Cage in this because I feel like we're only having a face off here, Stuart, and we should swap faces because I'm like, you don't look like you're having any fun. Why don't you come try some international terrorism and loosen up a little bit? Because that's what he's doing with Archer is by being a looser Archer, he's improving Archer's life. We even get... Margaret Cho in here Mm. asking if he had a surgical procedure. He's like, does she know about my face? No. Did he have the stick removed from his ass?
1: Yeah. What is. Castor Troy as Archer's plan to become the head of the FBI, eliminate all terrorism, and then he'll be the only terrorist? He went and got Pollux out by saying Pollux is cooperating and telling us where the
2: bomb is. Yes. And so Pollux is out, and what he tells Pollux is, we're going to use this law enforcement position, and we're going to take down all the criminals. We're going to do Archer's job better than Archer does, because we're not going to follow the Constitution. It's going to be said that they're using Gestapo tactics, but... Caster Troy knows where all the criminals are. He's going to bring them down and then get a monopoly on underground crime. He'll have all the prostitutes and drugs and gun running and terrorism you need because as Archer, he's arrested everyone else. Poor Margaret Cho. She's got to, like, karate chop and pull out guns. And... She begged for the part. She hounded Wu. Are you sure that <laughs> Tarantino didn't just push her into this? Because they dated, you know? I feel like Tarantino's like, oh, you gotta do this. And you know he did the same thing to Mira Sorvino, too. He put her in that Chow Young Fat piece of shit. Replacement killers. According to what Wu said on the commentary, first of all, his kids were a big fan of Margaret Cho and thought she was really cool. And second... It was going to be Young Fat Chow in that role, but then he couldn't appear in the film because of contractual obligations, and so Margaret Cho was the film. <laughs> <laughs> when you can't get Chow Young Fat, get Margaret Cho. Okay.
1: Yeah, talking about Cho's character, and this, like, if I want to think rationally about this film, which I really don't, but if you have a body swap movie and the characters aren't acting like who they look like, like Travolta, when it's cast as Sean Archer, he walks into that FBI room and they're applauding him for finding the bomb and disarming it. And he's reveling in that applause. When we saw the real Archer, when they did that to him, he's like, No, we got to think about the ones who died and were injured in this sting. Let's be serious. Like, no one ever calls Archer out for acting weird, which seems weird for a body switch movie.
2: They're just thinking he's so happy because he captured caster i think the one who should be doing this isn't margaret Cho. it's joan allen
1: oh yeah of course eve the wife
2: because it's not her husband she's been married to this guy for 20 years give or take and she doesn't notice she is just gonna believe this change of heart and papa with the brand new bag and the candlelit dinner and everything is gonna sweep her off her feet i think it shouldn't take a blood test i think it should have been the wife knows that's not her husband and in fact one of the big reasons warner would not make this film is they told the writers you're not going to allow Castor troy to rape archer's wife that will not ever be in a film we make and they said no no it's important because this is what the film is all about it's the fight over the woman and so they stuck to their guns that the rape had to occur
1: if this was a real drama maybe like we never see them have sex it's just implied but eve later on tells cage with travolta inside of him that oh you know well we husband and wife for a week, and they have this really weird moment of like, oh, now we gotta deal with how she's been raped for a week, and I'm like eh,
2: not the right movie for that The word I would use for it is overblown They are just taking everything and going the spinal tap route of 11 isn't even enough, with Woo and Cage we're gonna make it 13, and we're just going to make everything so overblown, and so crazy and not in a good way either. I mean, the craziness is definitely a manic form of insanity that's going on here. But again, it's one that you can take the ride with when you see Nick Cage doing the prison breakout. And nobody knows. I mean, it's a trick on the viewer that this is a freaking ocean bound prison. You'd think Archer would know. Archer should know where the prisoners go and he gets to the top and is stymied by the fact that there's nothing but water in all directions and he still jumps off. You just have to go with the fact that this is going to be extreme in every way. It really does seem like Wu wishes he was Michael Bay making The Rock.
1: Yeah, I think he wishes he was Michael Bay doing a good Michael Bay movie. I don't know if The Rock is that I'd have- have to go and revisit it but this isn't a wink wink nudge nudge look how crazy we're going to do this he just fought his way out of an underwater oil rig prison and now there's a helicopter with machine guns shooting at him and he's got to jump. i don't feel like they're ramping it up on purpose to see how absurd yeah i do think woo it's tricky giving intentions to the filmmakers but i do think woo thinks that yes this is exciting adrenaline pumping action i don't think it is
2: My question that I wonder is, I know that he wasn't particularly fluent in English and that there were translators. Did he not understand what some of this stuff was going on? It's quite possible he didn't have control over some of this tone because he didn't know what was really being said and being done. Well, take this for what you will, but he demanded rewrites and they would send him rewrites and he would send them back with no notes and just be like, not good enough do more. I mean, okay, admittedly, it's not good enough, but if you're going to break out of prison, I've seen a lot of movies where they do that, it's got to be cool. Not, I've got a cigarette, and I'm going to burn the guy's hand as he's tying me down to the electric shop therapy chair, while the guy who I had a sex sandwich with his wife and sister, I'm just going to convince to, like... Go crazy, you're Jim Belushi, tear up the prison. I mean, this is uh, the only word I had for it is comedy. This is not serious. No, it, you know what it is? Is having invoked Bay, it's Bayzy. It's not necessarily comedy, but it's certainly just kind of rolling with things in those moments. In those moments, That is a rollout moment because, yes, I agree with you. That scene is ridiculously stupid that this guy just got electroshock therapy, is drooling down his shirt, probably pissed himself from the shocks and is going to then get up like Frankenstein and beat down a couple of guards.
1: And the other thing is, Sean Archer, who is inside of Nicolas Cage at this point, he is an FBI agent, usually in these type of movies, whether, you know, know, usually they're just undercover, but it's like, oh, we can't hurt the other law enforcement people. He doesn't... Uh, he probably shoots a few of these security guards and sure they're kind of shown to be jerks but it feels like in these type of films either you have to have this moment where oh you got to grapple with that decision i mean later on we're going to see a bunch of fbi agents shot up archer isn't going to pull the trigger but he's standing around they're not trying to stop any of this happening and that just feels like that's something that's supposed to happen in these kind of movies you either struggle with having to kill law enforcement or you do things to stop it from happening
2: I feel like we've seen that many times, superhero movies or what have you. Even though they're persecuting me, how do I fight back without putting anyone in the grave? And that should be his struggle after he busts out of this prison and swims however far, I don't even know how many miles in the cold sea.
1: Artie, you didn't list that as a problem for this film. That was a big one for my wife. She did not like that he's able to swim to the shore.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. How the fuck? fuck did he do that i really there i did rewind i'm like did i miss him steal a boat how the hell did he just show up at a country club stealing a valet car i feel like there was a cut scene there Yeah, let's just kind of get to the rest of this movie is about one trying to kill the other. Now it's about how do we one up one each other? The cop is going to take refuge at the criminal's old hangout. And I struggle with this one. They have given some lip service that this Dietrich guy screwed them in some way. He is not a friend, he is not the guy that Caster called and said, hey, I need some goons to ref up a doctor to put my face on. He has separate goons to do that work. This was someone he used to like, but was mad because of how the bomb turned out.
1: This is just one of his suppliers.
2: Yeah, and it's somebody that Archer knows about because he's been busted before, so it's somebody who he knows where to go to. And we will find out in this scene, he is the brother of the woman who had Cage's child. Right, And I don't think Cage slash Caster even knows he has a child. I think that that's when it's revealed here to Archer as Caster, when she's like, this is your son. I think that's the big reveal. So Caster at no point knows he has fathered a baby. And apparently in a cut piece of dialogue, it was part of a three way with Dietrich, her brother anyway. So questionable paternal.
1: I mean, they, they will make out at one point.
2: I want to just give a shout out, though, to the actor playing Dietrich, Nick Cassavetes. The Wraith. You're going to say The Wraith, right? Well, I was actually going to say he directed Alpha Dog, but now that you've brought it up, Jacob, yes, he is the lead bad guy in The Wraith. And he's the son of John Cassavetes, certainly one of the biggest indie filmmakers of all time. Yes, but John Cassavetes isn't in here. Nick Cassavetes is. I was going to call him out. Both
1: in our book, ironically. (laughs)
2: I mean, Nick Cassavetes, he worked with Travolta, right? And she's so lovely. Yeah. I mean, and that's the Cassavetes way. You do one that's junk, and then you do one that's personal and small. And same year, Travolta would go do this small little film with him. That is not nearly as absurd as what we're seeing here. So what's this all about? This child is introduced because now it gives Archer some leeway to hurt Castor?
1: No, no, Archer immediately finger waterfalls Adam. Like, this is like, oh, my son's replacement.
2: Yeah, which is awful in lots of ways. I mean, I know it happened. (laughs) And and sometimes that creepiness is the story. I mean, I think of Vertigo, that was creepy, that, you know, like, let me find a replacement for my dead girl. They could have played it that way, but I think this movie is telling us this is the, the happy ending waiting to happen. Kind of, we'll get there. But what's happening here, I think, is Archer is learning not to necessarily give caster troy any leeway but when it comes to sasha earlier in the film we saw sasha briefly because archer was shaking her down for information about the bomb and where could the bomb be and where's all of that and he was ready to take her kid away he was ready to arrest her he's learning empathy for those caught in the middle I mean, if this is about character, I mean, we have all admitted it's not. But
1: yeah, if that was like the central or even a, a subflot of learning empathy for these characters just caught up amongst the crowd. I don't know. We would have had to see Sean earlier on, like not sympathizing with these side characters for this to be a moment.
2: This is just so a child can walk around and watch people exploding around him to somewhere over the rainbow.
1: It's so John Woo could do what he did, I think, in The Killers. He did this same kind of thing where he had, yeah, some song playing while violence went on.
2: Yeah, that's it. That was all that this all was about. It's so surface. And first of all, he... Almost had to pay for this scene out of his own pocket because the studio was like, this is taking way too long to shoot. And second of all, did you guys catch in the credits who sung Over the Rainbow? I could hear it. I could tell. It wasn't Judy Garland. It's Olivia Newton-John. Yes! Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta together again. Oh, I didn't even make the grease connection. But yeah, this scene with the Over the Rainbow... Here's the make or break, and we had this conversation with Mission Impossible 2 as well. If you don't like slow motion gun shooting, bowls of fruit exploding, guys falling over dead action, I again I'm gonna just say beautifully shot. I think the cinematographer on this is great, and I think Woo brings his style here. Of the gun-fu, if you're not enjoying this in a aesthetic way, if you can't enjoy the visuals going on here, turn it off. Are you kidding me? This is the make-or-break-it point for you? I broke hours ago <laughs> fi- on the carousel I broke. <laughs>
1: Yeah, this scene, again, one that is stuck in my head since I've seen it. It seemed really cool at the time. Oh, this silly little song while you have violence going. I've just seen it done better by now, so it it seems dated to me. I can appreciate it for what it is, but it's been done over and over. Cliché, as Stuart has called out many times in this film. It's been done better at this point.
2: Yeah, what upsets me about Over the Rainbow is that this isn't a Wizard of Oz parable. You know, if anything, it's looking glass or something. And I don't know that there's any music you can use for that.
1: They could have done the Pixies, Where's My Mind? Uh, I guess Fight Club did that better.
2: They could have done um, Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror.
1: I mean, really, but that's a little on the nose. Oh, this movie is all on the nose. At one point, they're going to look in the mirror and talk to each other. Again, no subtlety.
2: No, but I just wish... That the musical choice had more meaning.: I agree. What, well what does this movie mean? Well, <laughs> I mean, you could make that case. I wish it all had more meaning. Yeah, I wish someone thought about what does this movie actually mean besides two guys standing on opposite ends of the mirror, pointing a gun at one another? Nothing. It's cops and robbers. It's not art. I believe that you can be both. Tarantino believes you can be both and usually achieves it. This is trash.
1: But you can't find fun in trash cinema. I mean, there are fun, trashy films.
2: I usually can find it if they push the envelope, if they do something a little bit more. This movie, it just feels like Speed 3.
1: Yeah, I agree with you there. I wish this one was sleazier. I mean, we'll have a brother and sister making out. Again, push that more. Faceless Nick Cage, push that more. I do wish this was sleazier. It would match the tone of what they're showing me.
2: Agreed. I wish it went further. I wish it went a little bit crazier still than it does. If you're going to go here, go all the way with the cage craziness. And it really is, yes, the performance of these two actors who are not performing like each other. I don't care if they spent two weeks together. I don't care what they did. I am never getting a cage performance out of Travolta. I'm getting Travolta as the loony bad guy performance that I've seen Travolta give in many movies. Well, what it is is that there's nothing to parody with Travolta. He played it too straight, and Travolta, the actor, isn't a good mimic. So, yes, I agree. The fun of one impersonating the other, for me, there's not enough of it here. Yeah, I feel like Travolta's giving almost the same performance he gave on Broken Arrow. Yeah, well, I didn't see that, but I mean, I feel like it's uninspired. Yeah, and so that's why I like Cage a little bit better, because I feel like at times, not the whole movie— but at certain moments, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be John Travolta and tries to do something. And then he's like, but I'm John Travolta pretending to be me. So I could just be me again. This is also where we get escalation in the shootout at Nick Cassavetti's place because Pollock was there partying. And I think he was starting to get a bead that Castor wasn't Castor. He was starting to figure something out. And this is where he dies. And we get to see... Archer as Troy or Troy as Archer. Tie that shoe one last time because he couldn't tie his own shoes. Castor was always looking after Pollock. And so now Pollock's dead and they're equal, right? I mean, Castor took Archer's son. Archer and his people took Castor's brother. Yeah, but didn't you think that they were going to shoot the kid? They even set it up where like... It looks like he's about to shoot one and it could have hit the kid. I feel like this was a rewrite where someone said, no, 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 too controversial. It looked like there could have been a true one for one if Adam took a bullet here. But they back away from that and tried to say that this bizarre brother meant as much as Michael did to Archer. It was never discussed in any of their drafts that they talked about killing this kid the thing that was in there and then kind of pulled away from is the ending we'll talk about but the writers always wanted adam to become the surrogate son yeah i mean they find the logic to it but i feel like again this movie is all about trying to make direct parallels between cop and criminal without even having anything to say about it but yes it's drawing those parallels but now i will agree with you 100 on this we are a hundred minutes into this film when we're at this point. This movie's too damn long. This movie needs to have about a half an hour cut out of it.
1: Oh, cut out the boat chase at the end. That, that, that's all you got to do. Oh,
2: absolutely. The boat chase at the end feels like a drum solo at a concert. I mean, seriously, that is a bridge too far. But... It, it's a third encore
1: and we just want to go home.
2: Yes. And this is where now finally we've got to have Archer as Nick Cage convince Eve to Of who he is and break into the house and it at least gives Joan Allen something to play. She'd been kind of underused this film. No, she's terrible in this film. I felt so bad. My heart broke for her that she had to (laughs) do all of this with a straight face. At least Cage can smile. You know, at least Travolta gets to have a laugh, whether he's good at it or not. But she has to play all of this with utmost skill. Sincerity, and it's so painful. But this is also where Castor has killed the big boss, Lazaro. He's choked him out and made him seem like it's a heart attack. To, to, to clarify, big boss is in head of the FBI, not big boss is in a crime boss.
1: And this is where you could tell this is a pre-9/11 movie because this boss comes in, headed the FBI. We gotta stop this war on terrorism. This torture stuff you're doing—it's just—it's crossing a line. <laughs> like, I'm like, this is so foreign hearing this now.
2: Yeah, not to mention he was—he signed off on the guy letting his brother out. I mean, like, who would do that? The guy get, totally gets to walk around free after planting a bomb and causing all that mayhem. But Castor planted the bomb. This guy supposedly helped them um, figure out where the bomb was uh, please don't defend that i mean please stop <laughs> you do understand you are only consigning to the movie's absurdity you do understand we've let worse criminals out for less no we have not we have never let someone that put a biological weapon in a museum go free
1: he didn't do that
2: Ah, uh, whatever
1: he's an accomplice i mean come on
2: let's just get to the end here what's cool anymore the chapel doves This is so religious. All right, let me tell you what the ending was going to be. And the studio ended up finally saying, you've spent enough money, you can't do this. Okay. It was going to come full circle, stylistically at least. Archer and Eve were going to work together. Eve was going to steal some drugs from the hospital and give Archer a tranquilizer dart. And Archer, played by Nick Cage, was going to get the sniper rifle that caster used to kill archer's son and use it to shoot caster at this funeral only with tranquilizer dart not a real bullet
1: and like that was going to be it there's no going to there wasn't going to be a big fight
2: they didn't go into details on it but i have a feeling that maybe he would have missed and then it ended in a boat chase the boat chase was always there (laughs) (laughs) and what would that have meant what does that mean to have done it that way what poetic justice is being served it means archer it has now gone behind the sniper scope where Castor was. It's trying to reach at what you're saying about the cop going to the level of the criminal.
1: Try harder. Here's my question. If I could ask John Woo just one question about this film. This... I don't even want to call it a Mexican standoff, maybe a Central (laughs) America standoff. There are so many
2: people involved. They called it a Chinese standoff because it's apparently big in these gunfu films that you have five way, six way Mexican standoffs.
1: Okay. I don't remember seeing this kind of thing in any of his Hong Kong stuff, but maybe it's there. I just don't remember. But it is. So this is serious for him. Like, this is awesome to have 16 people pointing guns at each other.
2: Tarantino loves it too. I like it. It feels like scary movie parody of Tarantino.
1: Yes, yes, it does. Like characters just keep walking into this church and pulling a gun out on someone.
2: I do wonder why half those people are there. Why is Sasha, specifically Sasha, why is Sasha there? Half those people are there. I'm wondering where are the funeral patrons? Like where's the rest of the police force that is there to commemorate the dead head of the whole agency? (laughs) There should be a lot of FBI agents with a lot of guns taking care of this. but. Hey, again, if you like Wu's style, this is what you want. Slow motion doves. and a couple scenes, did you guys notice he used seagulls instead of doves? Like, I don't know if the dove union said we couldn't have doves work this hour, and the seagulls are like, we'll take the work. It's L.A. There are no doves. It's all seagulls.
1: (laughs) You know doves are just pigeons, right? (laughs) Like, these are just pigeons flying around. Maybe because they're white, we'll call them doves and say they're pretty, but... (laughs)
2: Hey, when pigeons cry is not as romantic a song from Prince.
1: (laughs) Very true. I gotta say the most amazing thing about this episode shootout fight, Joan Allen just takes a chair and crushes it over <laughs> someone. I'm like, finally paid off that Joan Allen in this film. Like, watching her take a chair, WWE style. Yeah. It's amazing.
2: But we do get the touching moment of Gina Gershon, Sasha dying. Put touching in quotes. Again, like, telling... Caster, who's actually Archer to take care of our son. You know, and I want to just throw out there, I love Gina Gershon. I think she's fun. Usually in Trashy Movies, she's the best thing about showgirls and Bound. And usually always fun to watch and hear. God, they took her personality off. She should have been a big part of this. And yeah, she's just functional. She just shows up to say one thing and die. She was a last minute cast replacement as well. Mm -hmm. It feels that way. She doesn't feel integral. She comes in too late Mm -hmm. or she comes back in too late. Yes. And Gina Gershon has been good in some odd parts, but I wouldn't say she's a great actress. I've seen her do stage work. She's not amazing. What is good acting anymore, Arnie? I mean, is any of this good? Like, I don't think you want good acting. I think you want it to be bad. In this movie, yes. The cagier the better.
1: With this script, yeah, I agree. If again, you put De Niro Pacino with this script. Ooh, boy, that's a real slog. The fact that you have Cage just hamming it up and Travolta just doing his bad acting, it makes it so much more tolerable.
2: I wonder what the script would be with Pacino and De Niro, though, when I know for a fact Cage came in and gave so much input and did so much ad-libbing. It would be a totally different movie. Half the lines wouldn't be the same... What actors do when they come into a part is they make it their own. They ask the director a lot of questions and then they go do their own work and they ask questions that the screenwriters never did and they come up with things. And I think, yes, the things that a Pacino or someone from his generation is going to come up with is different than what Nicolas Cage is going to come up with, who seems to exist in a weird pseudo Brando way of almost mocking the idea of giving a straight take. Like, why would I ever give a take that's what you expect? And- I don't know that we'll ever get to leaving Las Vegas, but just to put it out there, he won an Oscar for giving that exact kind of performance, but it just worked when you're playing a suicidal alcoholic better than it does a gun-toting terrorist. Yeah, I want to be clear. I've enjoyed Travolta and Cage in ridiculous roles and non many times, but I don't know what they're doing here. I don't get the joke. And again, I don't think there's a joke to get. There's no punchline. But what I know they're not doing is an impersonation of each other. I'm not quite sure where they're getting their performance, but it is certainly not through careful observation and using the method to try to bring the other one to life on screen. In fact, Cage was pissed when Travolta grabbed an ass because Cage is like, now audiences aren't going to realize I came up with the idea of grabbing an ass.
1: Mm. (laughs) I like the fact that Nick Cage thinks he invented that.
2: Yes. It does feel like Nick Cage is trying to create an alternate universe where he can do whatever he wants. And it just so happens to be film.
1: (laughs) I'm glad I live in that universe. Sometimes I
2: am. Sometimes I'm not. I think that's fair. Yes. I agree. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Again, I've enjoyed him going over the top. Sometimes it's very needed. But I guess I found out my limits. My limit is when I feel like they've done everything that can be done. They've had all these shootouts, all these chases, and then they get on the boats. And it's like, again, I just I equate it to a song that is running a little long and they do the key change. And you're like, whoo, got to take a deep breath because now there's a boat chase. The stunts are great. I mean, this ending of the boat chase where real stuntmen crash and fly off a freaking boat?
1: Very impressive. I thought that was green screen, and I'm like, oh no, they actually had to do that.
2: Yes, they really did that. That was amazing stunt work. But my God, does a boat chase really fit in this movie.
1: (laughs) I'm going to argue, I don't know if a boat chase ever fits. I'm trying to think of like great boat chases. And last year, I watched a lot of the old James Bond stuff that I had never seen. A lot of boat chases and that stuff. Didn't like any of them.
2: There was a live and let
1: die. That was good. I haven't got to that one, but. Yeah. Don't like boat chases. I went for an exciting one. Had never saw B2. Maybe cruise control has a great boat chase.
2: You know what? I've always been a fan of Waterworld. It actually has some good.
1: True. Okay. I'd have to revisit it. Yeah.
2: But apparently what happened is Wu said that the end at the church was not enough. Went back to the writers and said, we need something else bigger for the end. And they came up with a boat chase. He's like, I've always wanted to do a boat chase. And so he was really reveling in the fact that he got to do a big boat chase. And I think the Archer versus Troy stuff on the boat, I'm tuned out now. I'm, it's just I'm numb to them fighting. They've been fighting for like a half an hour straight, doing nothing else since the shootout at Cassavetti's place. But yeah, when those boats crash... That is really fine stunt work, the likes of which I don't know we'll ever see again. You don't know if we'll see stunt work like this again? No, they'll just green screen everything. There won't even be people in boats. Did you see Mission Impossible Fallout? Yeah, they're still stuntmen. They get awards and, and show up. You're right. Tom Cruise
1: himself would drive this boat into a pier. I mean, Mad Max Fury Road, movies are still doing real stunts. But it
2: is almost in defiance of the trend.
1: Yes. Yeah. It is a gimmick now when it's like real stunts. Like that's the reason to see the film now. Yeah. It's just
2: two people flying through the air at like 40 feet, even if they had harnesses.
1: No, it is very impressive. That end shot.
2: But that is still not over because they have to fight even more until Nick Cage is going to shoot Travolta in the stomach with a harpoon gun. I honestly did think it would end with them both losing in some way. Like The fact that they're going to go for the cheesiest ending and even, in essence, bring the dead son back to life by being the new parents to Adam. I can't believe how uncool John Woo is. He is so cheesy. Did he get a face swap with Chris Columbus? All right. He (laughs) fought for this ending. He's like, it's emotional and it's really giving them closure. And the studio execs said, no, you are from a different culture. You must not realize what's emotion in America. They wouldn't let him film it. And then they took it to test screenings and like 80% of the cards came back. What happened to Adam? Where'd the boy go? What happened to the boy? Why didn't the boy go home with Archer? And so they had to go back, get the cast back together to to shoot this scene, which is why I think the daughter looks drastically
1: different. <laughs> Well, here's the weird thing. They said this whole face swapping thing, secret ops, apparently not that secret because they're able to undo everything. And I remember my reaction at the end of this film when I originally saw it and I still felt the same way. Like I'm still on some level trying to take this, you know, serious logic, can this work. When Travolta walks in at the end, I just spent like an hour and a half of watching him be the bad guy. I don't like him at this point. I want Nicolas Cage to walk in. Like, I think that would have been a risky ending. Sorry, we can't swap faces. But I associate Nick Cage with the good guy by the end of this film. So I just feel creepy when Travolta walks in and I'll smile. Like they do this really long, slow reveal, like this shadow passing the windows and who's going to walk in the door. I'm like, you, it's the creepy guy that wanted to fuck his daughter.
2: That had to be the ending. I mean, I was stunned that he was able to get his face back so easy. I was like, oh, this didn't matter at all. Obviously, the transformation is that every time he looks in this face, he's going to have to see the man that killed his child and learn to be okay with it. That's called healing. That's what a character would do when they get through trauma.
1: Instead, he just doesn't get the scar put back on Yeah,
2: we found some random plastic surgeon in L.A., and I love the fact that his wife didn't even go. Like, she's at home. What is more important than your husband getting his face put back on, but she's at home knitting or something? It's black ops. They may not even let her know where it's happening. Oh, please. Whatever. You're an apologist for a terrible film. (laughs) He comes sauntering in as Travolta, and I just, again, with Adam, I can't... I can't believe this movie is so uncool. Now, how would you have felt about this, Jacob? Because what the screenwriters had is after all of this lovey-dovey, here's the son, kiss the wife stuff, Travolta then goes into his bedroom, looks in the mirror, and sees Caster Troy.
1: Something, anything, like, it would have felt like this whole body swap mattered. I don't know what it means, Stuart. If you're asking,
2: like, does it mean he's Caster Troy? Maybe. Does it mean he's become Caster Troy? Maybe. Does it mean he's lost his mind? Maybe. I don't know, but that was going to be the nebulous ending that the writers wanted studio and woo was like no let's just give
1: them the happy ending yeah you know it's a happy ending like the music starts for the credits i'm like did i just watch a period piece romance what is this music i didn't even notice
2: the music i'm just concerned how can john travolta have stubble minutes after they put his face on
1: they used the laser to put it there just like his chest hair <laughs> you can't laser
2: grow hair all right, well, let's see if any arrows flip like faces here. Jacob, Stewart, which face are you putting on for face-off?
1: Jacob. Here's the struggle I had. Like, I'm looking at this film, and when I try to, like, just rate something, like, on Letterboxd or, or give it a number rating, I try to be more objective and go, okay, well, here's the acting, and then, okay, I did have a little bit of fun here, so maybe that's worth half a star here. Like, this film... I just giggled the whole way through and had a fun time. Probably a really bad film. Probably not a great action film. I don't know, but I had a lot of fun during it. Now, I know not everyone's going to have that fun because my wife was sitting next to me and all she kept repeating was, oh, brother, come on, what's going on now? Like, that's all she said throughout this film, like totally baffled. I knew what I was getting into. I think this would make a great midnight movie, get the crowds there every time finger waterfall happens, start singing TLCs, don't go chasing waterfalls. When the daughter at the end's like, someone please tell me what planet I'm on. You can all like yell a planet. I wrote down every things repeatedly going through here that you can make a drinking game out of or something. This is a fun party movie. Is it a great action film? I'm gonna probably say no, but I have a lot of fun watching it, laughing through it because of just how absurd and over the top and camera how everything turned out, whether that was intentional or not. I'm going to go with a brown arrow because I don't think this is a good movie, but I do recommend it. So brown arrow.
2: Stewart. Thank God. Because again, I've yet to hear someone that could say this is good. What I hear is it's so bad, it's good. And that it's like in this meta realm where the worse you are, the better it gets. But yeah, please tell me what planet I'm on. I was screaming that as well at the end of my 10 hour experience. I'm shocked. Again, I'm shocked. It feels like all these actors wanted to just in my mind, destroy their career. Like, it's like a way of saying, I don't give a fuck about anything that I've done. Let me satirize. John Woo made some films that many people respected in Hong Kong, and now he's coming to America and restaging them as a joke. And these actors are obviously joking. I could only imagine liking this if you liked people taking the piss out of their own legend. And that's what it really feels like. It's like two actors that really don't give a fuck and a director that may not have understood what was going on. I know I didn't. I'm just stunned that this was the film that so many people told me all about for all these years. If I had been the studio exec that made it, I would have burned the negative and never released it. And instead, at least according to Arnie, it's one of the best action films of the 1990s. I never said that. I said it's a classic that was beloved. It's not a joke, but I'm laughing and it's all implausible. But who cares? Because it's not serious, but it's good and it's uh, okay. I don't get it. I'll just throw it up that way. To me, this is a one of the worst films I've ever seen. It is as bad <laughs> as anything. I agree! It's one of the worst things I've ever seen. And maybe one day I will grow to appreciate it as a midnight movie. But because I wasn't thinking I was going to see one, I was expecting The Departed, Point Break, oh Heat. It was abusive. It was run down by a speedboat. I couldn't believe what I had just seen. For me... I mean, the arrow on the site is going to be pointed up. I had fun with this movie, but my question is, is it a green arrow? Is it a brown arrow? Because it's somewhere in this nebulous zone where it can be both at once. Because when I watched it last year, I'm like Jacob. When I review stuff for Letterboxd, I try to be very objective. And I realized that this is a really not great film and I gave it I did what I do which is I gave it a very low star rating but then I hit the like heart which means the movie sucks but I like it and that's what I did a year ago but then sitting down and watching it this time I really did have fun and I was like I was way too harsh a year ago on the star rating I think it should be higher star and I like it in the end it's a fun time And it's a recommend brown, green, some combination thereof. This is not a good film. It's a fun film. And that's where I'll stand. You like the film. I'm happy for you. It hurts to understand why so many people did, though. And why this didn't continue. Why was there no sequel or TV series where...
1: Was he going to swap face every time?
2: Yeah, why not? He could become, you know, go as a woman. He could be an undercover dog. I mean, just think of all the
1: possibilities. It's just a more complicated quantum leap, though, at that point. Yeah,
2: exactly. Never say never, the rights are still out there. And I'm sure those writers would take a paycheck after they're working on Tekken and Darkman 3 Die Dark man die
1: i don't know you you don't remake the classics (laughs) Arnie.
2: you got me there they should never touch it
1: (laughs) i'm sorry just i had to
2: just put it in a shelf and just bronze it as perfection (laughs) from the 90s i just think that in the 22 years that have passed are a long 22 years and you could forget how fluffy the 90s really were Yeah, you know what? There were different 90s. To me, when you say the 90s, I think it was an excellent decade for independent film. One of the last decades where little movies got big audiences. But all of this stuff is stuff that I really didn't see.
1: I'll say to Artie's point, I don't know how Google decides to display this. I Googled 90s action movies. And the list, like they have images that you could click on and and go to those. Yeah, the Google top bar. Yes. Terminator 2, Mm -hmm. The Matrix, True Lies, and then Face Off, and then Con Air. So, Google thinks Face Off, top five 90s action films.
2: God, I wish I understood why. Yeah, above True Lies and above The Rock. I mean, it didn't gross more. No. But, okay. I've heard what you had to say. I will remain clueless as to why this movie is considered good, unless everyone has agreed for this film, bad is good. Isn't that the case with most Cage performances, though? I mean, realistically... At some point, he did become that and is celebrated, I think, is understood as an actor that you want to give that to. That's his gig. And this is the time where he was celebrating it. He was reveling in it. And that's what I can think of no more than The Rock, Con Air, and this feel like a trilogy. In fact, I believe they call it the Beige Volvo trilogy because in all three, Nick Cage interacts with a Beige Volvo, be it dropping a body on it or driving it. Well, why don't we move away from big action 90s movies and try and find a little indie film to talk about just for something a little different? Because Sean Ray picked it. (laughs) Yeah, Sean, tell us what to do. That the same person that wanted Face Off wants to talk about Locke. What's that? A 2014 movie in which it's just Tom Tom Hardy in a car for 90 minutes. (laughs) Tom Hardy, I love it. Yeah, Tom (laughs) (laughs) Hardy. Yeah, I've never heard of this film. He sent it. I'm like, you know, we only do wide-released films, right? This was a big indie. I saw it back in the day. I hadn't heard of it, but I'm looking forward to it. You know, I'm open for, I think Tom Hardy can be good. And then I think sometimes he's in Venom. He was
1: amazing in Venom. What are you talking about? He was giving a Cage performance in Venom. He Nick Caged that movie. He really
2: did. But he's not in this one. If if you say, why is Tom Hardy a thing? Locke is the first movie I would hold up. Well, we will be covering that next week. And Sean, thank you very much for giving us a chance to talk face-off. Because I was thinking as I was preparing to record tonight, I don't know that we would have ever gotten to this film. And man, it's a fun film and I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it. So Sean, thank you. I don't know if thanks is the right word, but you have changed my <laughs> life. <laughs>
1: I love what a transformative <laughs> film this is for you, Stuart. It has
2: My world is rocked. I wonder if, like, five years from now, if you revisited this film, which you won't, Mm-mm. and you didn't come in with the expectations oh. of heat... Yeah. If you might not need to take 10 hours to watch it. I mean, as much as we try, we are always going to see things through the prism of expectation. And yes, a big part of the shock of this was that for 20 years, I believe that this movie was understood to be something other than what it is obviously is. And in fact, no one can quite describe what it is. You know what epitomizes this film is what Jacob has termed the finger waterfall. You don't know what it is. You're kind of perplexed by
1: it. You don't want it to happen to you. Mm -mm. But you
2: don't want to look away either. Yeah. (laughs) So, Sean, thank you so much. You're an incredible support of our show. Indeed, I appreciate that. And if... Face-off wasn't up Stewart's alley. Who could have possibly predicted that? Mm. Apparently, Locke might be. So we'll find out next week. And in between, we've got a major release happening. Our M. Night series comes to a close. Glass opened last weekend. Huge for M. Night. He is back but is he good? Yeah, I know, we got a lot of feedback, and I, I anticipated this, that people were like, oh, I like him, Knight, and then I heard your show. <laughs> Why are you doing this? My attraction to him is that he has the potential to be good and terrible, and sometimes not know the difference, but I do hope... I am rooting for him in this case. Sometimes I'm rooting for him to make a terrible film because I want him to be humbled so that he can then finally make a good film again, which Glass might be. I am hoping that I am not getting another Lady in the Water or Happening or Airbender and that we're just going to be able to talk about somebody that has reclaim their throne so we'll find that out friday if you want to hear that show and all the m night shows the easter Ale trilogy unbreakable split glass plus everything else m night has done the highs sixth sense the lows lady in the water and everything in between after earth find the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate and Stuart, jacob thank you for joining me and now if you excuse me i have to use the little boys wee wee room Shawn, I've misbehaved. I need to be punished. But remember, every time you look in the mirror,
0: you'll see my face. Thank you for listening to this now playing podcast movie review. I hate to see you go, but I love to watch you leave. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You know this is fabulous work. This is this is oh, <laughs> bravo, <laughs> bravo.
1: Fucking
0: bum. Oh god, this is excellent. Bravo. Bravo. And a special thanks to Sean Ray for his support of the show and picking this movie for us to review. Ooh, wee, you get looking hot. If you enjoyed this show, please tell others. You can help us out by leaving us a five star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. Please someone, please tell me what planet I want. Want to hear more reviews like this one? You can find hundreds of other movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. In our archive section are over 800 reviews. Listen to our hosts discuss horror, sci fi, comedy, action, drama, and more. Plus, you can hear reviews of every movie based on Marvel or DC Comics.
1: Okay, so it looks like you're going to be in here for the next hundred years.
0: A new, totally free movie review podcast is posted every Tuesday. So come back each week for another new show. Whee! (laughs) What a predicament. Now Playing relies on listener support to keep operating.
1: Well, I think you better pull the trigger,
0: because I don't give
1: a fuck. (laughs)
0: You can support Now Playing by joining our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. Backers can get early access to reviews, unedited reviews, exclusive shows not available anywhere else, and more. Details are at nowplayingpatron.com. Oh, oh, no, I I see, I see. You, You think I'm bluffing. Maybe I am, but then maybe I'm not. At our Podbean site, you can also support the show by listening to any of our donation shows. Series like Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Phantasm, Jaws, and others are available for a small, one-time contribution.
1: See anything you like?
0: You can also donate to us directly on PayPal. Details can be found by clicking the banner at the top of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com.
1: What about our $10 million? What about when I become an American
0: hero for defusing the bomb? What's that worth? Want 375 more Now Playing reviews? Get the Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Arnie, Stewart, Jacob, and Marjorie reviewed 125 different movies, each getting three recommends or not recommends. I feel so close to you. I read your diary. You can also follow Now Playing on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests, where you can win movies and soundtracks. Also, subscribe to us on YouTube for original video content. All units locked and ready.
1: Follow Arches Lee.
0: Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. No more drugs for that man. Associate produced by Jason Latham. Bro, you gotta help me. I am so fried. The psychos in here find out I'm misfiring. We're both going to be dead meat. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. It's a suicide mission.
1: Yeah, I know. I know.
0: Now Playing credits read by Brock. Your voice makes even a hack like Handle uh, seem like a genius. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Lies, distrust, mixed messages. This is turning into a real marriage. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. Oh hey, shit happens, you know. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. You are now the property of Erewhon Prison, a citizen of nowhere. The Geneva Convention is void here. Amnesty International doesn't know we exist. When I say your ass belongs to me, I mean exactly that. Now Playing podcast is an exclusive trademark of, and may not be used without the expressed written permission of, Venganza Media Incorporated. I have got to go. I've got a government job to abuse. And a lonely wife to fuck. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2019. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Well,
1: Sean? Looks like i've just done left the building no.
2: Yeah, they went crazy. Yeah, my godmother was out at dinner, so I I figured there would be a bark fest. Arf, 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 arf. She's got to get to her room.
1: It's probably another 20 (laughs) seconds. (laughs) 20 seconds. She's 98. I don't know, but she she can move. (sighs) Did you guys make a tally of every time you did waterfall fingers in this film like me? No. I didn't. (laughs) I didn't know what
2: it was. I I was just, I was like, I was like, what is that?
1: Oh... (laughs)
2: this movie I mean I just I mm. I can't believe so many people you paid money like to see my that.
1: Wife when she was watching I can't this, believe with this me. was a hit
2: I would if I was a studio executive <laughs> I would have burned the negative I am like never let anyone see this film we never made it it doesn't exist oh. Is this a, I, I think you've revealed your hand here <laughs> well I mean we're not really on the show but... <laughs> All right, um, this was... Yes! Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta together again. Oh, I didn't even make the Grease Connection. We should just fucking do that series on (laughs) you. You need it. You need it out of your system. That and fucking Ghoulies. Is this really happening? Is a dream coming true? Yes. We're doing the Grease Ghoulies retrospective (laughs) soon. Spring donation!
1: (laughs) That's got to be together. I want to see the artwork of Travolta sitting on a toilet with a ghoulie coming out of it. Yeah.
2: (laughs) We've just figured out silver donation, folks. Mm. (laughs) The Grease (laughs) Ghoulies. It's a perfect combo, really, because it's your obsession in life. (laughs) Can we throw real genius on as the Easter egg? (laughs) And you know, like I didn't even see Greece until recently. What? Yeah, I saw it wow. for the first time like a year ago. I swear that at some point you must have been at my house and it was on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You always it was on TV. I knew the scenes, but you know, it's like I've never seen It's a Wonderful Life either. Like you just see scenes of it and you piece it together in your mind and you never You weren't see forced the... to watch it in film school? That one they don't they don't do they actually forced me in one of my film studies classes actually several of them oh it happened one night is the one the capra they always teach you yeah they i I had never seen it until college and like i'm in class being forced to finally watch it and i'm like oh it's actually really good i'm sure it is yeah
1: (laughs) i I ruined it for my dad my dad almost kicked me out on christmas because i just i was ruining the movie for him
2: What you were making like bar noises or something yeah i was just
1: making fun of it because it's stupid
2: oh it's touching I like it's it. It's Capra, you know? It's that cinnamon. I didn't comment. think I'd like it, but I liked it. And I still like it.
1: I, I just mostly just kept pointing out all the pro-communist stuff in it, and he's getting very upset. <laughs> it's a very anti-capitalist
2: movie. Um, A, complete aside, Margaret Cho for whatever reason is now trending on Twitter like she knew we were talking about her. Hmm. <laughs> but B, um I've not seen Waterworld. You've never seen Waterworld? I've never seen. Why would I? It's
1: it's a it, p- really? pretty good Mad Max ripoff. Yeah,
2: I all I heard when it came out was it was terrible, terrible. It,
1: it's had a reevaluation. People yes. have started to come around to it. Fish star no more. Yeah. They used a laser to put it there. Just like his chest hair. (laughs) You
2: can't laser grow hair.
1: I don't know, Michael Jackson did something weird with his pubes so he could have a five o'clock shadow. Are you serious? Yes, he had his pubes like put into his face. So he always had that uh, five o'clock shadow. Oh my God, really?
2: I don't know that that's yes. actually been verified.
1: That's what I've read. Yeah, well,
2: you know, <laughs> Michael Jackson pubic hair is now forever in. It Michael sounds Google. to me like they were just being cruel because the hormones he took meant that he couldn't grow a beard.
1: That facial hair was always the same. <laughs> Arnie's looking it up.
2: The unsolved controversies of Michael Jackson. <laughs> yeah, let's not please this hot podcast. <laughs> we'll is save like that for three a Moon hours long. review. Yeah, <laughs> or Moonraker, uh, Moon Moonwalker. We <laughs> already did Moonraker.